Thank you very much indeed, Francis, and um, for that kind introduction. And thank you all for coming along. Oh, this is a great place, lovely hall, you know, all lined up, all nice and steep, so nice and intimate. Really pleased to be back in Oxford. It's, I, I got all nostalgic. 45 years ago, I said, Little Clarendon Street then was a real slum, at least my bit of it was. <laughs> it's all tidy, all got, everything's got a bit smart now. I kind of hark back to the shabby 70s. And I, I like them, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Now, um, okay, let's see if I can click this. Oh, first of all, I should say, um, Winter, I'm Winton um, uh, Professor. Uh, that's Winton Capital Management. It's a hedge fund who pays me and my team. Uh, because no, as you'll see in a moment, nobody else would give us money to do the things that we do. So, um, and he's, uh, this is David Harding. Um, uh, he gives us money to, he's, we've now got a center, Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication. I think Cambridge Maths Department, which is, of course, the best in the world, but never mind. Um, the, the, um, the, is probably unique in also in having four full-time psychologists now working on it and two ex-BBC communications people in, in our group. So this is an odd you know, sort of combination um, which I think could be reflected in what I talk about. Okay, so yeah, summary. Here we go. Um, numbers are often used to persuade rather than inform, and this upsets me. I, I, I sort of... Um, I sometimes refer to this as number abuse, and I think it should be a criminal offence. You get really, you know, numbers should be there to help us, um, you know, make better decisions, whether you're an individual or a policymaker. But and statistical evidence is increasingly part of a of a contested media. We, we all know about post-truth, fake news, alternative facts, and all that stuff. And I, I was saying on the way over that, you know, when all this stuff came up last year, you know, as Trump and Gove, and all of whom featured this afternoon, I felt like giving up and just, you know, going back to my allotment. But actually, it's been really invigorating and, and vitalizing. So I hope that, um, you know, the, the things I'm going to talk about today show that this is actually a huge opportunity for those of us interested in evidence. Um, because what I'm going to conclude is absolutely vital to improve what is discussed in society, what's coming through the media in particular, but also how vital it is that everyone, I think as a basic citizen skill, is able to identify and call out the rubbish that, that is being propagated. So I, 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 that's my conclusion. So I, that's my manifesto, which I'm going to argue. First of all, I'm not, I, I don't think I'll use the word fake news. I think it's not a helpful term, partly because you know, Trump's use of it actually, you know, has devalued the term. You know, it's anything you don't like. Um, and also because uh, the, the, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is not fake in the sense of just made up. They're not lies I'm talking about. But time and time again, these are just exaggerations, just spinning, just bending things to a particular point of view to distort the message. So, as I said, numbers are often used to persuade rather than inform. Okay, here we go. Let's get it over with. Let's get the bus out of the way now. Okay, that's it. That's just making a number look big, large, or small. I can make that number look quite small. That's a, that's a, um, that's a, a packet of crisps each per day, even if we believe the numbers. But they didn't say that. Okay, so, um, and the other side is just as bad. You know, so they, they, you pick out a number and you hammer it through and somehow this is used as an argument, uh, as it is the 350 million was more persuasive than that. So um, 
I'd like to talk about trust in numbers. And I, I used to be worried about words like trust because I'm a, you know, a math, start off as a mathematician, a statistician. We don't deal with words like truth or trust or these, these things. No, I've had to really now get involved in this. Trust is absolutely crucial. And for trust, who do I go to? Dame Nora O'Neill, our local Kantian philosopher who's excellent in Kantian. And so she's, I'm going to mention her a few times because I just channel her essentially. I just go to her because um, she's, uh, I'm going to do it, give a few of her lists. She's good at lists. Simple things. Trust. Trust should be based on three factors. As her, she gives a wonderful TED talk. I think most TED talks are dire, absolute third-rate psychology. But never mind. This, her TED talk for TEDx Parliament, nine minutes of cant, trust, and jokes is brilliant. Absolutely wonderful. So I highly recommend it. But she says the first thing we should look for is competence. So I'm going to just pick an example of a media use of statistics. You know, I'm just at random Fox News. I mean, let's go, you know, why not call Fox News? So there's Fox News' idea of a pie chart, which some of you, come on, a bit slow. Come on, wake up. My 14-year-old audiences can get it quicker than that. Come on, you've got to speed up a bit. There's more of these. Okay, so, um, so Fox News, their competence may not be that great about pie charts. They should add up to 100. And then she says, honesty. Okay, let's check their honesty in terms of their use of statistics. So this is the way that Fox News compares 6 million to 7 million when they want to make the difference look big. And again, what's lovely is that kids laugh at it because they, they learn this stuff in schools now. They, can, they know when you chop an axis to make the, it fakes the news. Okay, actually, they got caught out. They got called out. A lot of people made a lot of fuss about that. And they said, oh, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. And they produced a new chart. All right, great. Okay, we made a mistake. In other words, we're incompetent, not dishonest. So, um, but really, what are they? Because let's look at Honor O'Neill's third criterion, which is reliability. Honesty, competence, and reliability. And Fox News, you've got to give it to them. One out of three, they are reliable. They always produce graphs like this. <laughs> when they want to make differences look big, they cut the axis. So no, one out of three isn't bad at all. Okay, so oh, oh, let's get the bad pie charts over with. Here's another one, just to show it's not just Fox News. I mean, I collect these things. I love them. You know, that's, that's not a great pie chart. That's not a very good one either. I, don't, I, you know, I just don't think they've quite grasped what, to, what it's on about. And finally, my favorite, boom. Now, this is what happens when a scientist gets hold of a bit of software that draws pie charts for them. So, um, okay, finish, end of pie, end of crude jokes about pie charts. Oh, there's one more, bar charts. Has anyone any idea what that is trying to do? I haven't worked out how they even entered it into the software wrong. You know, if someone can tell me where that, how that picture arose, I'll be really grateful. Okay, so end of, end of, end of, end of, end of bad graphs. Okay, so why might we doubt the science and numbers we're told that we receive as professionals or as individuals? Why might we be suspicious? And I'd like to talk about what I call the pipeline of statistical evidence. How do we come to hear about things? Because it's through that pipeline that the problems occur. And I'm going to jump ahead and say, usually people blame the journalists. I'm not going to blame the journalists. I'm going to blame almost everyone else except the journalists on this one. And the first people I'm going to blame are the scientists. <laughs> you know, the people actually do the stuff. You know, the, the, the numbers tend to come from two places, scientific or industrial research, or commissioned work, surveys, now, Office of National Statistics, et cetera. So they do, their, they do their work, they collect the data, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
But we don't tend not to see that stuff directly. We, it's always passed through, essentially, either the commissioners of that work over there, or this is passed through the scientific publications. Already, we have real problems in that, both in what goes on there and this link here. So much so that there's a lot of question now about how reliable the stuff in the, in the literature actually is. Now, I'm not going to go into the reproducibility crisis in great detail, except to say I think it's true, maybe not quite as big as people might claim, but I, I do believe it, that it, and not just in psychology, but in many areas that, um, you know, of, of, of exaggerated findings in, 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 um, in uh, the scientific literature. So, you know, even if you, you I don't like things saying, oh, how much of it is wrong or false. The crucial thing is that very much of it is exaggerated for all sorts of reasons, all the stuff about questionable research practices and so on. But I won't go into that in, in detail. Okay, next, next, it gets passed, because we as individuals don't tend to see that stuff. It gets passed through the press offices and the communications people. Ah, and what do they do to it? Well, they do terrible things to it. <laughs> you know, and then eventually it gets to the media. But first of all, it goes through the press release. Okay, the power of the press release. A lot of work now, press releases have now become a subject of academic study, particularly the group in Cardiff doing some wonderful work um, analyzing press releases um, and showing that, for example, a paper in the BMJ, show that the majority of misunderstandings about science that occur in the newspapers were already in the press release. And that, that is actually, that, you know, that's, that's, that's disgraceful, actually, because the scientists should be controlling the press release. They shouldn't just be letting the press officer write whatever they want in order to get the maximum number of clicks. They shouldn't be doing that. So it is the scientist's fault. So here's an example. This is a wonderful, worthy, dull study from Sweden on four million people, as they can do, showing that Swedish men um, have slightly higher rates of brain tumors. Richer, so richer Swedish men have slightly higher rates of brain tumors than poorer Swedish men. And they say this could be an artifact because of um, people having better health care, being reported, basically being part of the system more than the poor people. So that's it. Fine, fine worthy study. Bit yawn. <laughs> then the press officer, press office get hold of it, and they turn it into high levels of education linked to heightened brain tumor risk, which is not what the study was about. I think you can guess what's going to happen next. By the time it gets to the Daily Mirror, it becomes why going to university increases the risk of getting a brain tumor, which I think should be very worrying for many of the people in this room who have spent far too long in universities. So, you know, what's happened here? We need to identify that this is a, a series of problems which started in the press release. The actual article from the journalist isn't bad. What happened here, of course, is the sub-editor goes and sticks the headline in. And that's the thing that I think many people don't realize. The person who writes the headline is not the person who wrote the article. And what I'm claiming is that nearly all the problems occur in the press release and the headline, and often the actual articles are not bad at all given what they've got to work on. Here's another one. Why Marmite could prevent miscarriages and birth defects. This is one of the worst stories I think I've seen. <laughs> I, I work for the Science Media Center. Many, many people, I'm sure, are on their mailing list where we actually get stuff embargoed, under embargo, to comment on. So we can get the quotes in to the journalists. And very often, the quotes, for example, on this one, we try to get this not, he said, you shouldn't cover it. This is so, this is so bad. It's actually a good paper, um, which went in the New Journal of Medicine, but a terrible press release. The press release said, first of all, it said it's the biggest scientific discovery ever in Australia. 
And then it said, uh, and this was about B2, um, you know, might prevent miscarriages. Yeah, actually, they did mention the word preclinical model. They never used the word mice in the press release anywhere. <laughs> so the point is that vitamin B2 could prevent miscarriage, provided you are a genetically modified mouse. Because <laughs> that's what the study was about. And it was about, you know, um, repeated miscarriages in, due to a genetic defect, which is, a, you know, a small minority of people. And showing they introduced this defect, gave the, the, the um, uh, mice B2, and it reduced their miscarriage rate. So it could be of fundamentally real importance. Nothing, no, ages away from showing some any benefit to humans. But some of this slipped through, and in the Telegraph you get a headline like that. Okay. The point, crucial thing is, and this is where I now I learn from psychologists all the time, who's my colleagues, the importance of framing. Now we're getting into basics of Danny Kahneman sort of thinking fast and slow type territory, very familiar to many people. The crucial issue, and this almost upsets me as a statistician, is that numbers do not speak for themselves. It's how the story is told is absolutely vital. And we've all got to recognize, if we're concerned with the way that you know, evidence is used in society, we have to take responsibility for the story and how it's told. We can't just leave that up to other people. Because framing is very important. And I, you know, I just love frame, looking at frame, numbers of frame. This is a classic one. 99% um, of young Londoners do not commit serious youth violence. So this was the 99% campaign. This is just a bad photo from the London Underground. And it's a positively framed message. So we're supposed to say, oh, I got it all wrong. Hug a hoodie. I got it all wrong about young people. What you're not supposed to do is do two tricks to turn, make this look terrible. I mean, as I said, I can make anything look good or bad. Just that just. Just pay me enough. So, you know, the two tricks you do to make things look terrible. First of all, you reverse the frame from a positive to a negative frame. 1% of young people do commit serious youth violence. Next, what you must do to make something look impressive is change from a rate or a percentage to an absolute number of people. Crucial thing. 1% of young Londoners, there's about 10 million, 9 million people in London. So let's call young between 15 and 24. That's about nine, that's about a million people between 15 and 24. 1% of that is 10,000. Oh my God, there's 10,000 violent young maniacs in this city. That's the story you could tell if you're an imaginative enough journalist or press officer. So the, the numbers don't speak for them. I can, you can make them look either way, and we have to understand that, and we have to make it work for us. Here's another example of the, of the power of the press officer. Um, this is another worthy but dull paper, which didn't get any coverage, showing a good newspaper. 10% of people have a genetic variant that reduces the risk of high blood pressure. So it's a good newspaper. Yawn, no coverage, brilliant press officer. You, you've got to admire this turns it into a story in which 9 in 10 people carry a gene, which increases the chance of high blood pressure. <laughs> it's exactly the same study, exactly the same. You know, to statisticians, all you're doing is recoding the 0, 1 to 1, 0. <laughs> That's all you do, and you get, suddenly get 90% people have something bad rather than 10% people having something good. So very good. Big coverage around the world. I'm sure promotion. So clicks, 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 clicks. That's what people are going for all the time. You've got to realize what goes on. So by the time we see it, it's gone through these filters. Um, it's gone through the filters of, the re of uh, poor, actually not very good science, the huge selection that goes on in scientific literature. Then the press officers get hold of it and, and do their damage. Then the journalists, as I said, quite often do quite a good job. And then the sub-editor goes and sticks a headline on top of it. Um, and I don't, you know, uh, you can take a picture of that if you want. I'm not going to go through all those. This is just some of what you might call oh God, uh, the questionable Communicate, interpretation, communication. But these are all the things. I can give a lecture on each of these. This is all the stuff that people do. 
and I'm going to mention some of these. Don't mention, you do the framing, the relative. Actually, I'm going to mention quite a few of these. Exaggerate the relevance, blah, blah, blah. And, and then write a headline that's got nothing to do with the story. It's always a good, always a good trick. Um, here's an interesting one, um, on, which is just a few weeks ago. came out. People might have seen the story. And this was a story done by the group, in a really good group in, in Bristol, who are reviewing the evidence about low amounts of alcohol in pregnancy. Um, that's up to two glasses of wine a week. And what they found is that essentially there's no real evidence that up to two glasses of wine a week causes any harm to the fetus. Um, so that, that's what they found. And yet people are told, women are told, admittedly, to, you know, as a precautionary measure to be on the safe side, not to drink alcohol at all. And that's, that's fine because it's actually the CMO's guidance does say, but although there's no strong evidence that an occasional drink does any harm. So you can be reassuring about that. Okay, good, good article by Sarah Bosley, good headline. What happens in the Times? The front page of the Times says, light drinking does no harm in pregnancy, in quotes. Okay, there's two things wrong with that. First of all, nobody said that at all. It's a completely made up quote. Actually, the first thing is it's on the front page. <laughs> and secondly, nobody even thought it. Nobody suggested Nobody the journalist interviewed suggested that it does, there's evidence it does no harm. What they said is there's no evidence that it does harm. And I don't think journalists are, especially the sub-editors, are so dim-witted that they can't tell the difference between those two things. And we, we talk that stuff all the time. There's a big difference between there's no evidence it does harm. You cannot claim there's evidence it, it does no harm. Okay. So I, actually, what annoyed me was the only person quoting this article is me. <laughs> and I certainly didn't say that. So look, anyway, oh, everybody was, I didn't, people might have seen this on Twitter, massive complaints and arguments, complaints to the Times, threatening to take them to Ipso, etc. And then finally, a few days later, on page 34 in small print, they issue an apology for a, a grossly misleading, frankly, lie of a front page headline with a fake quote, totally imagined quote. I don't think that's very good, in fact. I think that's totally unacceptable, absolutely completely unacceptable that that practice goes on. So, you know, there is a real, you know, and this isn't, we're not getting onto crap social media here. This is the top mainstream media places we're talking about here. I'm not talking about, you know, just drivel coming in on Facebook. So this is a real issue. So here we go. I knew, I told you it'd come up. Trump, Michael Gove, yeah, okay, the bus, Michael Gove. Every, every lecturer on post-truth must <laughs> feature those three people. People have had enough of experts. Now, my, Michael Gove, bless him, has been grossly maligned because everyone just quotes that. They always leave it that. They cut the quote. But he actually went on. This was part of his phrase. We went on to say, from organizations with acronyms saying that they know what is best than getting it consistently wrong, by which, of course, he meant the Institute of Physical Studies. But never mind. The, the, <laughs> That's what he was accusing of. But to put in those terms, it becomes a lot more reasonable. What he's talking about is organizing people saying, experts saying stuff and not being accountable for any mistakes they might make, gross predictions. And actually, a lot of the predictions being made about the short-term effects of Brexit were found to be not untrue. So um, I, I, you know, no, be fair, be fair. You know, people have had enough of experts. But this is really worrying if people have had enough of experts to all of us who specialize in expertise. Um, the evidence is that this is, that, and I won't go through it chapter and verse, but that this is actually not true. The surveys being done from people is, shows that um, you know, trust in expertise, in science, um, is generally holding up fairly well. There is a gap for, between Remain voters and Brexit voters, but actually it's, it is holding up. It's not as, anything like as bad as people say. However, 
that's, we mustn't be complacent at all. We can't just sit back and say, oh, well, we know best, dear boy. We've got to do better. We, as people who value trustworthiness and truth, must do better. We've got to up our game in this competition. And we don't up it by lying even more, by exaggerating. But we do need to do it by telling vivid stories, by getting involved. So in Nora Neal again, let's go back to her, because as I said, I'll just copy whatever she says. Um, her first, she's got this lovely idea that we should not aim to increase trust because people, oh, we want people to trust us. Why should anyone trust you? You trust, you cannot demand trust if there's something offered up to you voluntarily. You cannot demand it or ask for it. What she says is you must demonstrate trustworthiness because that is in your control. That is the crew. That is within everybody who, who produces evidence and communicates it. We have to demonstrate trustworthiness. If we want people to trust us, why should they? We have to earn it. That's the crucial issue. And, she, and furthermore, she says, people must be able to assess that trustworthy. They can't just take it on trust. <laughs> people get, at some point, she says, you have to trust. You have to. But you, and, and so she's got this lovely, again, she likes her triples. Very useful. Sticks in the mind. Information should be accessible, usable, and accessible. Useful ones. I, I, you know, I, can, I, can, I can remember three things, I think, in my head at once. Accessible meaning you've got to be able to get at it. You know, people have got to find, be able to find this stuff. It can't be buried in the bottom of a spreadsheet. It's got to be usable. People have got to be able to understand it and, and, and use it for their purposes. And accessible, people have. Not everybody, but people who want to should be able to check it. Should be able to see what it's based on, what the assumptions were, how valuable, how reliable it is. So it's, there's a really, really good aims that we should all be trying to live up to, which I think is um, she's fantastically good at identifying this. So two strategies. We've got to improve the quality of the stuff we hear, make it more trustworthy. And we have to improve the capacity for people to, to criticize us. I'm, I'm, I'm identifying us as being the experts, but of course we're not. We're also the punters. We're also the people who receive the stuff. We produce it, we receive it. We're in this privileged position of being both, being academics, whatever. So we've got to train everybody, including ourselves, to call out the rubbish, even if it means criticizing our colleagues or us. Okay, so I'd like to just talk briefly about those things. First of all, and I'm not going to go into this detail, improving what's in the scientific literature. And I'm just going to talk, re refer to this. Um, Dorothy Bishop from um, Oxford, because one of the prominent campaigners is there, is from fantastic work. This great manifesto of re reproducible science. The crucial thing about that paper in Nature Behavior, which I recommend to everybody, is that it doesn't say, oh, it's their fault. It says it's everyone's fault. We've all got to do better. The funders, the institutions, the journals, the scientists, and the peer reviewers, everything has to got to be, the game has to be up, including a lot on, you've got to improve the stats education, which I think is great and absolutely correct. But you've got to improve everything. We just have to make our science, published science, more trustworthy. Okay, so I won't go into that. Then the bit I am interested in, we've got to tell better stories. We've just got to, we've got to grab the attention of people without lying, without fake clickbait headlines. We've still got to grab that attention to pe for people. But we've got to, you know, this has to be done with humility. We've got to be able to admit uncertainty. This is really difficult. We can't overclaim. And we, that means we've got to work with press officers, not just criticize them, not just sneer at them. We've got to work with all these people and improve their game, what they're doing. We've got to be impartial. We can't have our own agendas. You know, why should anyone trust us if we are forcing our agendas onto people? And I think we should strengthen regulation. I, mean, I think it should be a strong regulatory things. And you know, strengthen training, guidelines, um, education, and so on. So this means working with media. So I mean, and, and I'm talking mainly about the mainstream media here, but I'd also say um, 
uh, you, know, th you know, these things would apply within, um, uh, well, actually, the calling out stuff applies more to the, um, uh, to the social media, which I'll come to that in a moment. Okay, so there's what, and better formats, metaphors, perspectives, stories. Studied perspectives, again, this is being studied by some wonderful psychologists at Microsoft Research in Germany on um, how can we communicate ideas of magnitude and numbers and importance to put things in perspective. Yeah, the usual thing is always oh, three times the size of whales, or it's as big as, like I do, the chance of winning a lottery, I always say it's like, you know, pulling the one golden grain out of rice, out of an entire bath full of rice. That's the image I use for that. So, you know, these images is terribly important. Okay, but let's, let, we'll come on to that in a moment. Let's do uncertainty. It's something I really love. We've got a whole program on communicating uncertainty. Um, can, can experts allow, uh, admit uncertainty without losing trust and credibility? It seems to be an absolutely crucial issue in the modern age, that we have to be able to be honest about what we don't know. But just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know anything. So we've got to be able to do that. Okay, here's a nice story. I love, you know, I love these examples. UK unemployment rose by 21,000, the Office of National Statistics says. Well, they sort of said that, even if that was in the BBC News. Because um, if you click down, the office of ONS did say it rose by 21,000. But if you start clicking through the website, um, you get onto the labour market, and then you get onto the table of contents, and you look at section 20, and it's got about you know, the margins of error, and it's got a great big slab of unreadable text. And eventually, you find out that that 21,000 has got a margin of error of <laughs> plus or minus 78,000. So actually, we don't know if it's gone up or down. It probably doesn't change very much. That's about all you can say. That is the limit of what we can say. Uh, but it's buried. It is buried. It's buried both by ONS and it's certainly buried by the BBC. Um, who don't even know. I mean, most journalists don't even know that um, unemployment is based on a survey. They think it's based on a claimant count, it's the, but it's a labour force survey. So um, the lesson thing that people I want to take from this is from the Bank of England. Bank of England are cool in their uncertainty communication. And this is, I mean, this is their fan charts they produced about, this is about future growth they were issuing at the end of last year. And um, the fan charts for the future, that, that's a 30%, 60%, and 90% prediction interval based on, from the Monetary Policy Committee, based on a complex model adjusted with a little bit of subjective tweaks of the, of the, um, and, the and the final, the, the missing 10% is unassigned. Could be anywhere. So the 5% down here could be down here. So bets are off. That's the central 90%. Otherwise, the 10% could be anywhere. So they deliberately don't model the tails, the extremes. OK, that's the future. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Who cares? Anyway, but what I'm interested in is the past, what's known as epistemic uncertainty, our uncertainty about facts. We don't know, because what it shows is we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't really know what's happening at the moment, and we don't know what happened in the past either. <laughs> so that, I mean, that sums it up. Bank of England don't quite use those words. That does, doesn't inspire confidence, but they don't. GDP is constantly being adjusted in the past. Past recessions come and go. You know, they, they say, oh, we found we didn't have a recession because they're adjusting a GDP all the time. Same for all these other measures. So quite a long way in the past is that we're likely to have revisions. Um, so, you know, that's, I, and I quite like that way of showing it, in fact. Um, uh, and so we've been taking some, uh, lessons from that. This is a, a shiny app we've written to take any time series with a margin of error, plots the data points. Oh, by the way, that is the 21,000 gain. Complete artifact. It's just a lucky point from the, the survey. It hasn't gone up at all. So that all that story, why has it gone up? Interviewing people, why do you think unemployment's gone up? Oh, bollocks. 
Anyway, so, oh, sorry. Do <laughs> you edit that bit out? It's all nonsense. So um, you can join the points up, and then I quite like, as you can't quite see on the projector, there's a 90% band. That's the 30 and 60% band. So you're doing the fan chart idea on unemployment figures. I think immediately that gives a much stronger image of what you can, what you can assume. Now, this next one, is, which we've got in an option in our software, not everyone likes. Um, now, you may think that you need to put your glasses on or you've got a bit of fun. What have I done? Why has that suddenly happened? Anyway, so um, this is called a density strip, where the density of ink is proportional to the probability density, the normal distribution around the central point. And uh, R, as software, is really good at these. And some people are using these more and more as, as a visualization of uncertainty. I love them. Most people don't. Partly because if you start animating them, it actually makes people feel physically sick. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and you just think glad, your eyes are gone funny. You're trying to focus. It is, deliberately doesn't let you focus on a point. But it means there's no boundaries. It's just a blur. We're, we're going to test these in randomized trials about their acceptability and comprehension. I'm sure this will end up getting ditched, but I love it. Okay. Okay, here we, oh God, here we are. No, sorry, the bacon sandwich. Story. Now, how can we tell better stories? Here's another rubbish headline. And the, um, this is one of these uh, IARC reports on, on carcinogenicity, where they said processed meat is in the same category as, in terms of how it's evidence that it's carcinogenic as cigarettes are. Not as carcinogenic, the evidence that it is carcinogenic. So essentially it's like, you know, this is the same category in terms of the p-value, not the effect size, for those who are used, used to working in those terms. This is universally misunderstood by everybody. It's currently in this, you know, the argument going on about glyphosate as well. The IARC have put it into probably carcinogenic without any reference to how carcinogenic it might be, whether it actually is a risk to anybody. I mean, I, I think they even got that categorization wrong, judging by their use of evidence. But never mind, it, it is quite extraordinary how bad. I mean, this is the difference between hazard and people know the difference between hazard and risk. Really useful. Hazard is just the, you know, when you fill up, you know, I love risk assessments. Don't you love it? That form where you fill up the potential hazards on the left and what you're doing about them, and then the final remaining risk. It's great. It's a real training in risk assessment. Because the thing down the left are the hazards before you do any mitigation, something that could possibly, in some circumstances, cause some harm. But after you've done something to it, they're no longer hazards. You know, they might be, the crucial thing is the risk. You know, I always say the, um, a lion in a cage is a hazard, but not a risk, unless you open the gate. And, uh, and flying in a plane six miles up, that's really hazardous, but it's not risky, unless you leave the door open, of course, then you similar kind of thing. And similarly, bacon is hazardous, but how risky is it? Does it matter? And actually, bless them, IARC at the bottom of their press release do give an idea of effect size. 50 grams of processed meat a day associated with an 18% increased risk of getting bowel cancer. Do we care? Is that important? No idea whether that's important or not. What does that mean? 50 grams of processed meat, there's about three rashes of bacon sandwich, decent bacon sandwich. Oh, lovely. Anyway, decent. So, but we know, we know that we can't interpret a relative risk like that. It's also shown that relative risk is a manipulative frame for communicating risks. Endless research, Cochrane reviews, showing that this form of communicating risk is, is biases people to think have an exaggerated sense of the risk. So it's, it's really condemned by BBC guidelines. Everything says you shouldn't do this. But that's what they do. Um, because that's what comes out of epidemiological studies, I suppose. But in order to see whether that's important or not, we have to know about the baseline risk, the percentage points, the absolute size. And you have to, they won't tell us, 
You have to go on another website, CRUK, I always use them. Excellent, excellent stats. Excellent. Everything. CRUK comms is, I think, very good indeed. Very balanced. So about 6% of people, let's say there's 100 people here. Um, so 6% of you, six of you uh, sadly will get bowel cancer. Anyway, even if you don't eat bacon. So, so but we're talking about what's an 18% relative increase over six percentage points. Now, you can probably just do that in your head. I know of no journalist who can do that calculation. I, except they, and, and tell the story. And they know they should, it's in BBC guidelines, that you should use absolute risk, not relative. But they, they can't do it. Uh, and, but, and the, the crucial lesson from this, one takes this all from Gert Gigerenzer's work, which says you should work in terms of expected frequencies. Turn it into a frequency calculation. Stop talking about percentages, rates, risks, and all this rubbish. Say, so what does it mean for 100 people? So 100 people like you, smug, middle-class academics, sitting down to your granola and blueberries every morning. I, I know the sort, typical. Anyway, typical Oxford people. And then, um, and so, um, you know, six will get bowel cancer during their lifetime. Let's compare that with 100 slobs, probably Brexit voters, drinking, you know, eating a, a, a great big greasy three rasher bacon sandwich every day of their lives. That's a, did you notice the difference? That's how many will get bowel cancer. That one case is the 18% is the increase over the 6 percentage points. Now, told like that, suddenly you think, is that all? Oh, pass the brown sauce. I mean, really, do, do, we, do we care? Start the day with a carcinogen, I say. Well, maybe not, maybe not every day. <laughs> so, um, and, and actually, uh, blessed by uh, we, not just me, because they got bombarded with this um, interpretation when the story came out. Uh, not that WHO helped, and the BBC were using this on online, and by the 6 o'clock evening news, they were using this way of telling the story, which actually dampens the whole story down and puts it in perspective. So 100 people will have to eat that every day of their lives um, to get uh, one extra case of bowel cancer, which in the trade is known as the number needed to eat. <laughs> ah, some get the joke. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a joke. It's a bit of an in-joke there, anyway. So, <laughs> now, the point is, though, that this... Um, Expected frequencies as a way of teaching probabilities now in the GCSE 1 to 9 math syllabus. And as was mentioned, we've written a book, and we've got a MOOC that's going to be developed on this for teachers on how to teach probability using this idea of what does it mean for 100 people. Because you can do all sorts of complex Bayesian analyses if you use that. Okay. Oh, God. <laughs> Clickbait. Yeah, here we go. Why binge watching your TV box? No, I'm sorry, I can't resist this sort of stuff. This is to do with storytelling again. Now, how can we tell a story? I, I just love telling stories that demolish stories. It's, it does seem unfair, but I mean, who could resist clicking on that? Really, of course I'd do that. So when you click on it and you go through to the article and you eventually, usually they don't link to the original article, but you find the original article and find it's from Japan and you download it and you look at the table that's inside it, and you look at what's the important figure and you get, you're used to reading these things and you just look at the number of people watching more than five hours a night and how many pulmonary embolisms you've got, they get. And then you conclude that even if this is a true and causal relationship, you'd have to watch more than five hours a night for 12,000 years. <laughs> before you can expect to have your, your pulmonary embolism. And what I always say is that by which time it'll probably become as quite a relief. So, <laughs> but who's going to tell the story that way? Because who's going to click on it? Actually, I think this is really clickable. They're told like that, you know, ridiculous claim from, you know, newspaper, from article. So, you know, the ways of reframing these things that I think can make them in the way this demolishes the story, but not that actually I think sitting on your backside watching television is bad for you. You know, it does have, it really does have risks to your health. Um, but uh, this particular 
element is not that frightening. So calling out bad practice, this is one of the crucial things. How can we do better? I've, I've talked about how we can try to improve what, what's coming through. Calling out bad practice. Okay. Some of us are already doing this, a lot of this. Going, can people remember this, the toast gate thing in the early, the killer burnt toast? Yeah, anyway, this is a story from the Food Standards Agency who launched this campaign, Go for Gold, in January, encouraging us not to burn our toast or our roast potatoes because it produces acrylamide. And acrylamide at high enough doses is a carcinogen. It is a hazard. There's no evidence of it's of any risk at the levels where humans consume it. People have not for want of trying. It's not that people haven't tried. Been eight big studies showing no increase evidence of increased risk of cancer for people who consume more acrylamide in their diet. So if you're exposed to vast quantities of it industrially, yeah, it can be harmful. But so it's a hazard, apparently not a risk. However, it got labeled a potential cancer risk. They couldn't say how much at all. What they could say is that at very high doses, some mice develop tumors. Okay, so we produced a blog on this, how dangerous is burnt toast. Now, toast was harmed in the making of this blog. <laughs> that, that, that is not CGI, this is real, real toast. Um, and again, the advantage for why we have to engage so much in that, that we got all this under embargo. So we could produce the counter story at the same time before the story was, was published. So, and we sent it to the journalists before, while it was still under embargo. So we could get quoted. So I was on the Today program, you know, at the same time as the story was released. I mean, the media loved this. You know, here's a new story, and here's someone who's going to tell you it's rubbish. <laughs> they love it. Of course they do. So, um, so you know, the, the, in our blog, we said adults with the highest consumption of acrylamide could consume 160 times as much and still only be at a level that toxicologists think is unlikely to cause tumors in mice. So you could, 160, and you still seem to be okay. Um, so it's 10 loaves, so, you know, 10 loaves of burnt toast a day, and if you shovel that lot down, then you should still be just okay, I think. You know, so so um, it, to put it, and I was on telly and all this sort of stuff, um, and the, you know, I'd always felt a bit guilty about this. By 11.15, the story had essentially been wrecked. <laughs> essentially, the campaign was being withdrawn. I think it's still going on in a small way, but... Um, they, you know, they're saying, oh, no, don't worry, don't worry, it's not going to give you cancer. Burnt toast isn't going to give you cancer and that sort of stuff. So, you know, there's a very, very misguided um, campaign that they get involved, the FSA did, and, and they got caught out. Um, now, but, you know, you, how can you do that? How can you get people to be able to do that in a, in a regular way? Because everyone's trying to manipulate what we feel. Oh, oh well, they need to distinguish hazard from risk. I've, I've gone through all that work. Yes, yeah, okay, but no, this hasn't caught on everywhere. People in California, a few weeks ago, are trying to get labels on coffee, because con coffee contains acrylamide, saying it could cause cancer. No evidence there's any risk at all from, from cancer from, from, from the acrylamide in this coffee. Absolutely none, in spite of people trying to find it. And yet, some people want labels on that. I mean, this is absurd, completely absurd. And again, a complete uh, lack of understanding between hazard and risk. The fact that something is carcinogenic does not mean it's risky. So this is, the, this is the issue. It's a difficult thing for people to grasp. So helping people critique what they hear. I think it's, you know, lots of people come up with checklists of how to ask a question and, you know, what questions to ask and things like that. Well, we sat down, a group of us, with about 15 checklists and tried to boil them down to very generic questions to ask. And the first, there's three, they come in three groups, essentially, three crucial questions. Is the number itself trustworthy? You know, the number itself. 
And this is to do with the reliability of the study. Is it a fair comparison? What's the margin of error? Is this the right summary? Can we trust that actual number that's being quoted? You know, the reliability of that number. So it's the internal validity, essentially. Then is the source trustworthy? This is one of the crucial things. Now, this is quite difficult. This is, you know, has it been peer-reviewed? Is it been spun? Why am I hearing this? Oh, you know, the paper today, another survey, and you read this crap survey, and it's just been planted by a PR company on behalf of somebody who's trying to sell something. Why am I hearing this? And what am I not being told? That's one of the most difficult. These are very much questions of judgment. You know, this is like an apprenticeship. You have to teach people. What am I not being told? Am I being told that this is only the most extreme result and they've actually looked at 57 different things and just quoting the one that's the most extreme? Very difficult to spot. And finally, is the interpretation trustworthy? It's external validity. And this is to do with the context, the long trend. Is this breaking a trend? Crime statistics, the usual thing, only report this year. They don't give the long-term trends. Correlation and causation being mistaken. Relevance, is it mice or is it people? Is it important? Is it really big? It may have billions, millions, but it might not actually be big. You know, what's the context? So the number might be right, but actually, is the story right? Can we so these basic issues, which are, I think, completely generic, you can break them down into finer questions, and then they can go even further into finer elements that can be done. And a lot of people are trying to, to do this, to train people. Full fact, a fact-checking organization that I've got a huge respect for. For example, I've been working with Facebook. They were taking out, before the, before the election, full-page advertisements in the national newspaper about trying to spot false news. Um, how to spot fake news is a US idea that where um, you know, little checklists, um, especially now aiming at school kids to try to de detect this stuff. Um, and I'd like to mention with Ian Chalmers sitting in the front row, I didn't know he was going to be there. Um, I wasn't apply, but the Testing Treatments Interactive site, which is very nice. This is for health, but actually its list of, of key concepts for assessing claims about treatment effects are fairly generic across a wide range of, of uh, evidence appraisal. I mean, they, and they work really hard to boil these down to the essentials. Very nice, very nice site. And I'd like to point out, you know, again, the recent studies that that group, in conjunction with Informed Health Choices, um, funded from Norway, have done in, in Uganda. Um, big papers in The Lancet on, you know, ability of children in Uganda to assess the reliability of claims about treatment effects. Big cluster randomized trials of education programs in Ugandan schools using all sorts of you know, comics and other, other you know, good training, teaching, tested teaching materials for kids. It's such an exciting time. That's quite interesting. You, I mean, the awful thing, you got very little coverage at the time, this, these papers, but you know, the, the, the detecting bullshit, health bullshit, and of course the comic is about cow shit, <laughs> the health benefits of cow shit. So it's quite, quite a nice um, bit from Vox. Um, and, uh, but they also, in the same group, um, carried out randomized trials of the families, of providing podcasts to the families, training people to detect fake health claims. And on the back of this, I'm, I'm very fortunate, I've got now a uh, commission to work with on BBC World Service to produce two documentaries comparing the ability of Ugandan school kids and Californian school kids to identify fake health claims. Who's better? I'm sure the Californian kids get hear more rubbish than the Ugandan health so it'd be interesting. And that's because California, it's failed to go through the California legislature, but a, a, a congressman was trying to put through uh, um, a new law to make it compulsory within school education to train kids to do this stuff. Because kids, you know, I think you know, this is to do with media literacy, internet literacy. It's terribly important. And you know, we think about, got to train kids about their privacy, about not you know, being revealing you know, you know, sexual images or, or, 
or stuff about themselves privacy on the website. But it's equally important, I think, to train, train people to identify the crap. You know, it's going to be a big, this is just this stuff. And to understand that things are being targeted at you, targeted to you specifically, and you might not know that you are being targeted with this. Okay, so um, it's a really inter interesting time in area of research. We're working with Sander van der Linden in Cambridge, who's been doing this stuff on inoculation against fake news, where you, you prime people by warning them, giving them a little bit of fake news. So well, people are going to tell you something like this. It's not true, you know. People are going to, you know, there's people campaigning to do this. And by little, by giving a, priming them, giving them a little bit of the fake news, then when they hear the whole stuff, they believe it less. On the whole, they're less convinced by it. So I think it's a really nice idea using this inoculation idea as a way of preventing um, news spreading through the you know, filter bubble. So, um, so that's um, I think that's that's a really important idea. So this is an active area of research now. Okay, to conclude, about time to to improve trustworthiness of numbers, we need accessible. I forgot the usable and accessible evidence, accessible, usable, and accessible evidence, and improved public ability to assess that trustworthiness to call out. And I think you know, this is, these are really worthy things, and they are you know objects now of academic research. I think is, is, you know, academics um, should be at the forefront of this of this movement. Okay, just going to finish off. You know, when the, I, I can't resist telling you about the story. When the media, what can go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? As I said, I said I've written a book about risk, um, and uh, also wrote a, wrote a book on sex by numbers, about statistics of sexual behavior. Well, what could go wrong when you start talking about a book like that? Um, so uh, actually, that's the cover. Um, it took a long time to write the book. It took a long time to choose the cover. That was the, going to be the cover. <laughs> oh, that's quicker. That was quicker. You got, that, you got that quicker than the pie chart. <laughs> but um, no, this was done with the Welcome Trust. <laughs> no, 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 can't have that. Quick. So this is the cover they dare not show, the band cover. Yeah, anyway. Um, so one of, the, one of the issues that came up in the book, this is using the NatSal survey, is that there's less sex going on. People are having less sex than 20 years ago, for example. So, um, and people have, um, you know, I think this is a true observation, and people have, you know, argued that, um, this is due to we got into massive connectivity. We're checking our emails. We're watching, looking at stuff on our iPads, watching box sets till you know all hours of the day and night, having less time, boring time for intimacy. Okay, so that has, is a serious suggestion. I don't mean it's not proven that that's one of the suggestions about why people are having less sex. Um, basically, the statistics are that in the in uh, opposite sex couples between 16 and 44, that in um, in 1990 survey, Natsal survey. The median was having sex five times a month, and by 2000, it was four times a month, and by 2010, it was three times a month, which suggests by 2040, there won't be any sex at all. So if you, nice linear experiment. Anyway, so I said all this at the Hay Literary Festival, and I got some laughs about it, but there was a journalist in the audience who didn't quite get the joke. And, um, So I'm not going to go on to, okay, good, right, okay. So that was what, it was in the Daily Telegraph the next day. Rhythm having less a Game of Thrones with Cambridge professor. Yeah, no, actually there were some jokes in there, you know, there were some jokes. Um, so this got reported absolutely straight. And I thought, yeah, exactly. And I thought, well, nobody reads this stuff, you know. Just yesterday's chip paper. I didn't realize how media worked now. Nobody, everyone just writes other people, steals stories from everybody else. 
So you get somebody writing a story in a reasonable you know, outlet that, that mentions sex, Game of Thrones, and Cambridge Professor, and everyone just takes it. They don't bother to check or look at it. They just take it. Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. So couples will stop having sex by 2030 <laughs> to the large rise in TV ratings. Yeah, fine. All with my name underneath. Yeah, I like this one. Sex will be obsolete by 2030, according to one lone sign. That's me. That's <laughs> I, mean, I, I ain't got, you know, 40 years trying to build up, slogging through your reputation and your publication. <laughs> just like that. Down the toilet in a week. You know, such, such a thing. Anyway, so I just went on. I went into German. You know, you know, any opportunity to show a half-naked lady in this like, Italian, you know, it's just, it goes on and on. I still get contacted about it. It just makes you bad. But one journalist who, who um, uh, restored my faith in journalists, one journalist got the joke. Is Game of Thrones killing your sex life? This is from Forbes magazine. And, um, and he produced this graph. This is the data that I was quoting, you know, showing you could extrapolate that linearly. But what a genius, what a genius. He extrapolated it backwards. So that <laughs> estimates that in the, <laughs> in the year zero, people were having sex 200 times a month. <laughs> According to this data and this Cambridge professor, presumably. So it just goes to show you know, isn't, isn't statistics wonderful? And that um, you've got to be careful getting involved with the media. So thank you very much indeed. Okay.